Welcome to the Vulva Diaries with host Dr. Amanda Selk, bringing you the 101 on vulvovaginal health. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Claire Danby, who's an OBGYN at Maine Medical Center. She's also a clinical assistant professor at Tufts University and has a dedicated vulvovaginal clinic. Hi, Dr. Danby. Hi, Dr. Salk. How are you? I'm great. So you're going to talk to us about something called DIV. So what is that? Yeah, DIV stands for disquamative inflammatory vaginitis, which is a bit of a mouthful. And it's an inflammatory non-infectious vaginitis. It's a chronic condition with an unknown etiology. It's infrequent, but it's not rare. And with it, women have a purulent vaginitis, they get discharge, vestibular irritation, and pain. And overall, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. Is there anything else other than the pain and discharge and how it presents, or that's just it? Discharge is the most common complaint. And I tell my patients about 90% of women present with that. People get the discomfort, dyspareunia, or pain with sex. Some people just say that they have pain at the opening of the vagina or burning. Those are the major complaints. And then on exam, we see a vaginal inflammation. Sometimes you can see changes at the level of the vestibule as well. There can be some redness or some thinning of the tissue or a rash. So other than your exam and history, how do you diagnose it? There actually are diagnostic criteria for this. And there are four things. The patients need at least one of vaginal discharge, dyspareunia, paritis, burning, or irritation. And then on exam, you need to see some kind of vaginal inflammation, a rash or a redness, sometimes a focal or a linear erosion. Number three, they do need to have a pH of the vagina that's greater than 4.5. A normal vagina has a pH under 4.5. And then Saline microscopy or wet prep shows parabasal cells and inflammatory cells. So to meet the diagnosis for DIV, you need to have those four criteria. And you said earlier that we don't know what causes it? No, we don't know what causes it. Overall, unsure. So initially in the 60s, it was first described. And when they treated it, they showed that there was no response to antibiotics Then there was a question as to whether or not estrogen deficiency was actually playing a role in it, just given the age. One of the things I didn't say is that this primarily affects Caucasian women who are around perimenopause and studies about 50% of women are in, have gone through menopause. The rest are sort of perimenopausal. But so they thought that estrogen was playing a role, but treating with estrogen alone isn't curative. So then there was a thought as to whether or not this was something from an infectious standpoint. It was treated with clindamycin. And although that helped people's symptoms, they relapsed quickly. Just going back to that, we moved away from thinking that it's due to something infectious like, you know, E. coli or group E. strep. And now it's seen primarily as just an inflammatory condition. And we're not sure if there are predisposing genetic factors or if there's something autoimmune or immune-induced. But that's a lot to just say that we don't actually know what causes it. And you said it's not rare. It's not rare. And, you know, in women who present to vaginitis clinics or women who have persistent vaginitis, it's, it's found in about 3 to 8% 
of women in those settings. So I, I don't consider that to be too rare. No. And when you look at vaginitis being a common cause of visits to the doctor, it may be more than that and just not being diagnosed. Yeah. And, you know, I talked about the diagnostic criteria, but you actually do have to go through sort of a systematic approach to be able to diagnose it. Do you want me to to go through how I go through that with patients? Sure. Again, it's a clinical syndrome. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. So there's no definitive lab test for this. We can't just send a swab and say, oh, okay, you have DIV. So first I speak to women. I, you know, I, I get a good history. I do an examination. And what's really important is to note that these women have a normal vulvar architecture. So they don't have any scarring conditions of the vulva. They can have sensitivity at the vestibule. They might have thinness or erythema. You've got to examine the vagina, which again can reveal some ecchymoses. They might have some erythema or erosions, but they don't have any scarring or synechia of the vagina or adhesions. The cervix might have some erosive lesions on it. So at that stage, then with the speculum in, I get swabs from the vagina and I, and then I use them to perform microscopy. I also get a vaginal pH on the wet mount. Then usually you'll see an increased number of parabasal cells, which are the immature squamous cells of the vagina. And then you'll see a bunch of inflammatory cells as well. And when I first learned about this, it was described as sort of like sheets of white blood cells under the microscope on microscopy. I still have the luxury of using a microscope, so I use that to rule out BV. I use Amsel's criteria to rule out BV. I don't do any fancy swabs for BV. If microscopy is negative for trichomonas, then I send a more sensitive test for trichomonas, usually a nucleic acid amplification test to rule out trich, because trich can also cause a pretty impressive discharge. If I don't see yeast under the microscope, then I send a fungal culture for yeast. And in practice, I don't do a lot of vaginal cultures for bacteria, but if someone's got a lot of redness in the vagina, then you could do a vaginal culture to rule out group A strep. And if all that is negative and if all that is normal, then you can land on a possible diagnosis of DIV. That's how I go through it with patients. And then how do you treat it? There are two initial treatments that are outlined. The first one that was studied was the use of clindamycin 2% cream vaginally. And you can use four to five grams of that vaginally for two to four, sometimes even up to six weeks nightly. The other option is using 10% compounded hydrocortisone cream, four to five grams. And that's a pretty good volume of cream in the vagina, again, nightly for two to four to six weeks. So you can start with either of those. There have been no head-to-head studies comparing clindamycin treatment to hydrocortisone treatment. In the States, at least, clindamycin cream is available by prescription, and there's variable insurance coverage for this. Hydrocortisone, in the way that we recommend it, it has to be compounded, and that can limit its access to some patients. I tend to use hydrocortisone first as opposed to clindamycin, but that's for a few reasons. I think it's very fair to use clindamycin as a first step. 25% of women can be cured with one treatment. And if you can use something that isn't expensive to patients, that's curative and covered by insurance, bonus. But I feel like by the time people get to my office, they've already tried clindamycin. 
they either didn't fully respond, they might have had a partial response. And so they might be looking for something different. With clindamycin, it's interesting because you can get a rapid response to it, but the relapse is common. It was initially used for its antibacterial effects, but clindamycin also has really impressive anti-inflammatory effects. And there have been immunomodulatory mechanisms that have been proposed. Clindamycin can induce resistance. So I'm a bit wary of it. So I don't use it a ton as first line, even though it can be effective. A lot of my patients I've got on hydrocortisone. And if I have to keep them on a maintenance regimen, then I usually have them on hydrocortisone for maintenance. And so you said you usually do it for two to four to six weeks? Yeah. So some of the articles talk about four to six weeks. Some talk about two to four weeks. I think it depends, and this is very nuanced, but it sort of depends on how bad someone's discharge is and their schedule and my schedule and how far they've traveled. But if I've got someone who's got DIV that that is mild to moderate, then I might get them to use the clindamycin or the hydrocortisone nightly for two weeks and then see them back, or you can do it nightly for four weeks and then see them back around the one month mark to assess for improvement and assess their symptoms. But you can use either treatment for up to six weeks if needed. Nightly, I mean. Does your treatment change based on menopausal status? Good question. My choice of treatment of choosing hydrocortisone or clindamycin doesn't change based on menopausal status, but with these women, I do want to make sure that all that they are well estrogenized. So as part of the workup and part of the assessment, I'm checking to see whether or not people are having symptoms of atrophic vaginitis or vulvar atrophy. And the bottom line is that I do want to make sure people are well estrogenized before I treat. And I usually use estradiol cream to make sure that the vagina is well estrogenized. Are there any other conditions that behave like DIV that it gets confused with? Yeah. Firstly, on initial intake, I sort of brought you through how I evaluate everyone, but I want to make sure that it's not just physiologic discharge. So if I'm doing an exam and a woman has a discharge, but if the pH of the vagina is normal, then I think we can safely exclude DIV as being the cause of her discharge. And we can reassure her that everything else is negative, that she's got physiologic discharge. After that, then just as I was just talking about, I think about atrophic vaginitis. And it's hard because we think that the presence of white blood cells on microscopy can sort of distinguish DIV from atrophy. But some women with really profound atrophy can have a lot of white blood cells on exam, on microscopy. So this profound atrophy can mimic DIV. So initially, if I'm not sure, I'll treat with the estradiol cream first, see how they respond. If there's little or no response, then I move forward with treating DIV. The other thing that I wonder about is vaginal lichen planus, which can also cause an impressive vaginitis. But the biggest thing here is that I'm looking again at the vulvar architecture. So if there are any architectural changes to the vulva, if there's any scarring, then it's more indicative of a lichen planus. You know, DIV doesn't scar the vulva or change the architecture. Women with lichen planus also can have significant vaginal changes with an impressive inflammation, serosanguinous discharge. They can get erosions, adhesions, synechia, and 
there are some reports in the literature where they're wondering if lichen planus was the cause of DIV, and I can understand this because they both have inflammation. Both can be managed with steroid, but DIV, again, doesn't really scar the vagina. So does it ever go away? Oh, yeah. So it can. I know that doesn't sound overly optimistic when I say it like that, but in one report, again, after initial treatment, you know, 25% of women are cured at the one-year mark. But at the one-year mark, there about 60% of women do require maintenance therapy, and women need to be on some kind of a maintenance regimen to keep things at bay. And these regimens can vary from person to person in terms of how much steroid do they need, how often do they need it, can they get away with one gram of compounded hydrocortisone vaginally three times a week or even twice a week. The big issue, though, is that we don't know exactly what's going on. So to be able to cure it, it would be great to be able to treat the underlying condition. And that's still a big unknown. Yeah. And I've got a healthy respect for not knowing (laughs) what's going on. There's not much written about this, but there are a bunch of women with Crohn's disease who have an inflammatory vaginitis of the vagina, almost like a rhinorrhea, <laughs> which is a no, I, I've seen it. horrible thing to say. And, you know, is that then DIV or is that another type of inflammation with vaginal lichen planus? There's all these sort of pictures of inflammation that we don't truly understand. This is a totally complicated disease for sure. It's, I'm glad you're talking about it with us because it will help more people know about it. Yeah, it's hard. You know, these women are super frustrated. They, in looking at some of the studies, there's a mean of, you know, 15 to up to 30 months of women waiting to have an appropriate diagnosis. And it's embarrassing. It affects their daily life. It affects their ability to be intimate. They're uncomfortable and they're, they're miserable. So I, I feel bad for them and I I wish we had wonderful explanation and cure, but I do reassure them that a lot of times we can manage their symptoms with something local. So it's not like we have to give them systemic medication for this. We can manage it with local medication, which is good. And do you have any last take home points you want people to know? Just to keep this in mind, so really when you're going through the diagnosis of vaginitis, you really have to have a systematic approach. You've got to really go through, you've got to look at all the tissue, you have to exclude the other types of infectious vaginitis, you've got to exclude a vaginal discharge due to estrogen, you've got to exclude other sort of skin or autoimmune conditions. And then if all that is negative, then you can think of DIV. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Again, that's Dr. Claire Danby, who's an OBGYN at Maine Medical Center and clinical assistant professor at Tufts University in the United States.